0: So this is the last night, um, it's been a good week, uh, hopefully you've enjoyed the week, hopefully uh, you've learned something, I know I learned a lot from Chris's sessions and, and been challenged uh, quite a bit from that, so I appreciate that. It's been good to, uh, to put some names to faces and maybe some context, some, uh, get, get to know some of you better, so I've enjoyed that and appreciated that. Uh, we talked about a number of things this this week. I'm not going to uh, necessarily review per se. Um, one of the things I wanted to just, just touch on a little bit here at the beginning is scientific law versus scientific theory. So I made I made the comment the one evening that evolution is not a law, but a theory. And as I thought about that, I was like, maybe I should do a little bit of research on that to, to see what what uh, the difference really is. A law is a statement that's based on repeated experimental observations that describes some aspect of the universe. So it's a statement that's based on repeated observations that describes something about the world that we live in. It's a description of something, um, but it does not explain how that something exists or where it came from. Gravity, for example. We know that gravity is. we 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 understand the law of gravity, but we don't know why it exists, how it works, or where it came from. So that's typically what a law is. A theory is, there's some similarity. Uh, it's more of an explanation. It's considered to be correct, but it's open to refinement. So when we talk about the theory of evolution, that's, it's accepted by a lot of people in the scientific world as truth. But they say it's still open to refinement. And I would actually tend to agree with that. Because there is something about evolution within a species. We talked about that last evening from one dog to another type of dog. there's some variation in that type of thing. But we've never witnessed the macroevolution going from one species to another, and we never will. Another way to look at it: a a hypothesis, that's probably something you'll remember from science class, hopefully, is a guess of what might happen. So when you do an experiment, as a scientist, you form a hypothesis. You say, you know, we're going to do this experiment and we expect this to happen. And then once you've done it a couple times and, and you've, you've witnessed it a few times and you formulate a line of reasoning along with that, that's, that's when it becomes a theory. A theory becomes a law when it's been thoroughly tested. By these definitions, evolution can never become a law because it would never be observed. So evolution will always be a theory that's open to refinement and, and there might even be some... Discussion about whether or not it's a theory. I found that to be interesting. But I want to wrap up this evening with why God and why Christianity, and take a look at the evidence. We've been talking a lot about these things, um, and we've been we've been coming from the perspective of science this week. We open we opened the Bible some, and that's and that's good. We should. How can you talk about God without opening the Bible? But uh, what excites me about this is that we can we can understand who God is, even outside of Scripture, so that someone who wasn't brought up in a setting like we are, has, has the same opportunity that we have. Because of creation, because of their conscience, uh, they have the same opportunity to observe God. So why God? Can we prove that God exists? And I should uh, have you answer that question. Hopefully you would have have uh, something to say about that from this week. Um, I found that really interesting uh, listening to Robbie Zacharias, and most of you have probably heard him speak or at least know the name or maybe read one of his books or something like that. I, I like how he explains or proves the existence of God. And, and some of this we've talked about in some ways uh, this week already, but this, this really breaks it down and makes it very practical, I thought. The first step is no matter how you reduce the physical world or how far back you go, you end up with something physical that cannot explain its own existence. You end up with something physical that cannot explain its own existence or cannot explain where it came from. Okay, so we can explain where well, I came from, my mom, and, and on back, and we can keep going back, but no matter how far back you go or how much you reduce the world into little, little parts, into atoms or, or cells, or no matter, no matter how you reduce it, you end up with something physical that cannot explain where it's come from. Even if you believe that evolution is true, you still end up with something physical that, you don't, that, that cannot explain where it came from, that can't explain its own origin. And so therefore, we have to conclude that the universe had to start from something non-physical. That's the only proper conclusion from that. If you end up with something physical that can't explain its own existence, there has to be something before that that could explain its existence. And so you have to have something that's non-physical. The second point is, everywhere you look in the universe, you see information. We talked about this numerous times this week. Information always comes from a mind. There's never an example ever in history, ever that we can observe, where information came from something other than a mind. Design, um, any, anything that contains information, language. Language is a big one. Because if you believe in evolution, you can't, if you believe in the Big Bang, you can't explain language, you can't explain words, you can't explain how the word exit up there in the wall means something to us. You can't explain that, you can't explain information. So therefore, we have to conclude that the universe had to start with something intelligent. We have to conclude from this that the universe had to start with something intelligent. The third point is, all through history, we see moral debates and issues. And again, we talked about this briefly uh, throughout the week as well. This demands an explanation of moral reality, a moral lawgiver. Uh, Every person believes in a right and a wrong. No matter what religion they ascribe to, no matter what they say they believe, even if they say they don't believe in good and evil, right and wrong, every person believes in right and wrong. And if you want to test it, just try stealing something from them. Try punching them in the face. They believe in right and wrong. Every person has this basic understanding of right and wrong. There's, there's no question. And so, from these three things, the only thing that we can conclude logically is that the universe requires a first cause that is non physical, intellectual, moral lawgiver. Non physical, something spiritual, obviously, intellectual, or something with intelligence and a moral law giver. The only being great enough for this is a transcendent God who is outside of creation, who is uncreated, an uncreated God. I think one of the, one of the things um, that atheists believe is that all gods are created. And that frustrates them, because why would you believe in a created God? We know that created God, we've known for, for years that created gods are false. That they're worthless. We don't believe in a created God. We agree with them on that, that you shouldn't believe in created gods. Everyone believes in something somewhere that is uncreated or eternal. The universe requires a first cause that is non physical, intellectual, moral lawgiver. The only being great enough for this is a transcendent God. One of the most popular questions that Robbie Zacharias receives is this, and if, if you have a few minutes sometime, look, look him up on YouTube. He, he answers questions uh, in front of large audiences from college students, from atheists, from uh, very interesting to, to see the way he handles it, the way he answers uh, questions about God. And the, the most popular question, we touched on a different version of this question last night. How can you believe there, that there is an all-knowing, all-powerful, all-perfect God when there is so much evil in the world. And the way he answers that question is this If there's no God, okay, so the premise of the question is that there is no God. Because how, how can there be a God if, if there's so much evil in the world? If there is no God, then there is no moral lawgiver. If there's no moral lawgiver, there's no moral law. If there's no moral law, then there's no good. If there's no good, there's no evil. So what's the question? It, the question is self refuting, there's, there's, no que- there's no basis for a question. This, the question self destructs if there is no god now even though this question self destructs without god i think we still need, need to be prepared to think through it maybe we can't fully answer it we're not going to come up with with the perfect answer because only god fully understands why it works the way it does but we're going to we're going to also struggle with this question in our in our life when we come up with when we come up against suffering and it's a valid question there's nothing wrong with the question but on when we come when we start with the basis that god is then we can wrestle through that question and come to an appropriate conclusion. So why Christianity? Uh, I feel like we've talked a lot about why God and how how we can prove there's a God, but why Christianity specifically? There's a lot of religions out there, but all religions have some form of the following. They all have an initiation, a way to be accepted into the religion. Um, And if if you look at a lot of Christianity, it's that way too. Chris has talked about this a lot this week. You get saved. Okay, that's your initiation. Now you're in. Now you're in the fold, so to speak. All religions have a way. A way that you're supposed to attempt to stay on. Things that you're supposed to kind of do. You know, you just try to go down this path. And all religions have a final assessment with the hope that my good deeds outweigh my bad deeds. Every religion on earth has this. And unfortunately, many Christians live this way as well, where they hope that somehow my good deeds will outweigh my bad deeds. In thinking about this, I believe that true Christianity is a lot like a marriage. So about 10 years ago or so is when I first met my future wife-to-be, beautiful young lady. Um, And it took some time but I eventually convinced her to marry me. It took a little bit more time than what I thought, a little bit more time than maybe it should've, and she probably has some valid reasons for that, I'm sure. But what if, what if I would've said, you know, when I, when I got down on one knee and I asked her to marry me, what, I, what if I would've said, you know, I have this book, and it has all these rules in it, and if you're very careful, and you obey all these rules, and you wash the laundry, and you take care of the children, and you feed the cat. We don't have any cats, but um, you, uh, you wash the dishes, you make food just like I want it for about 50 or 60 years, then I'll think about accepting you as my wife. What do you think her response would have been? Surely not. Yeah, surely, surely you're crazy. That's absurd. That's crazy. We, we wouldn't even consider this. We would not consider doing this in our relationships with each other. And yet somehow we think that that's how our relationship is with God. Somehow we tend to think that way. And I think that's a human tendency because we see that in a lot of other religions. You see, my wife does try to please me, by the way. She does do what she can to follow those rules. I never gave her a rule book, but she does what she can to follow those rules, and I do what I can to follow the rules from her book. But we don't do that to gain each other's acceptance. We do that because we already have it. We already have the acceptance of the other person. Now there's another side of this, and Chris—it came up in in Chris's session a little bit, where he made the comment about salvation issues. So I described the marriage, how a marriage couple accepted accept each other from the beginning for the marriage to work properly. But there's another side to salvation, which also applies to marriage. What if I were, uh, you know, so maybe me and a couple of you married men were standing around, and we were talking, and we were saying, you know, I wonder how many times I could get away with not washing the dishes and just vegging all evening on the couch, you know, watching YouTube videos, not taking care of the children, before my wife would throw me out, before she would divorce me. How many times do you think I could, could, could do that, I could get away with it? Or what's what's the what's the smallest amount of, of of uh, things that I could do? The the fewest uh, weeds I could pull in the garden, or the 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 least amount of times I could wash the van. Which, by the way, she washes the van. Just that's how our marriage works. But that's another subject. Maybe that's a bad analogy. Um, That's stepping on my toes too much. What if what what if I would act that way? That's that's the other side. What if I would say, you know, I can hang out with other women. It doesn't really matter. Because my wife won't divorce me if I do that. We're still married. She's with me for life. That'd be crazy, wouldn't it? Wouldn't that be insane? A crazy way to look at marriage? Of course it would be. We would never consider that. Now, why would we not consider that? Why do I try to please my wife? Why does she try to please me? it's not because I need to follow all those rules to gain her acceptance. I have her acceptance. So why do I do it? It's because I know what it's like to have an almost perfect, about as perfect a relationship as you can get with another human. I know what that's like, and I want to keep it that way. I've experienced that. And I believe that in a lot of ways is how salvation is supposed to work. When we taste God and we experience him, when we experience the, the approval, we experience the blessing of, of doing what he says, then it causes us to want to do that more. And so I think there's a lot, of, a lot of similarities there. That's, I believe, how a relationship with God is supposed to be. Now, the idea of a marriage relationship is completely foreign to any other religion. The Christian, Christianity is the only thing that talks about marriage in our relationship with God. You know, we are to be the bride of Christ. That's just crazy to other religions. That's crazy. So Christianity is unusual in that way. True Christianity op- offers something different. Now, I do want to say this, that just because true Christianity is different in that way from all the religions doesn't make it the, 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 the true religion. It doesn't make it the true way. Just because something's different doesn't mean that it's true. Okay? But I wanted to emphasize that true Christianity the way God intended it to be is vastly different from anything else out there. I don't know how many of you have bumped into a Muslim or, or you know, another person that believes in God but isn't a Christian, and they'll say, well, you know, our, our God's the same. You know, we both believe in a God that's a creator. We, bo- we both believe that God's all-powerful. We both believe that God knows everything. We both believe that God's 100% in control. But there's something different. And we'll touch on that here. Even if God or a first cause exists, why Christianity and why not another religion? I want to talk a little bit about Christianity versus Islam versus Judaism. I believe there's a core thing here that separates these religions. Although they believe a lot of the same things about God, there's a lot of things that are vastly different as well. This discussion centers around Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the dividing factor between Christianity and every other religion. Now, a lot of other religions, uh, Mormons, Muslims, Jehovah's Witnesses, there'd be a number of others, would claim that Jesus was a good prophet, was a good man. And and we'll look and, and see why that doesn't work. Why you can't argue, it's impossible to argue that Jesus was just a good man. Now, here's the basic difference. The Christians say that Jesus died and rose again. The Jews say that Jesus died That Jesus died, but did not rise. I have, that, I have that incorrect in there. Jesus died and did not rise again is what the Jews believe. The Muslims say that Jesus did not die. Only one of these can be correct. So this is the dividing line between what we believe and what they believe. Jesus also claimed to be the son of God. Uh, many non-Christians believe that Jesus was just a good man or a great prophet. As a matter of fact, there's some atheists that will believe that. That he was just a good man or a great prophet. Jesus either was the son of God as he claimed, or, or he was a deranged lunatic. There is no middle ground. It's impossible for him to be just a good man because of some of the things that he said. And I want to look at some of these passages. Um, just a few of these. We won't have time to get through all these. But just to show a little bit about some of the things that Jesus said about himself. John 5 Verses 16 through 18, you can turn there. And therefore did the Jews persecute Jesus and sought to slay him because he had done these things on the Sabbath day. But Jesus answered them, my father worketh hitherto and I work. Therefore the Jews sought the more to kill him because he, had, because he not only had broken the Sabbath, but it also said that God was his father making himself equal with God. Now there's a lot of people that claim that Jesus didn't say that he was the son of God. And he doesn't really come out a lot of times and say, I am the son of God. But the Jews got it. The Jews understood. And they killed him for it. They understood what he was saying. It might not be quite as clear to us. One of my favorite probably is in John chapter 8, verses 57 through 59. Then the Jews, and, and Jesus was talking about Abraham. Then the Jews said unto him, thou art not yet 50 years old, and hast thou seen Abraham? Jesus said unto them, verily, verily, I say unto you, before Abraham was, I am. Now again, He didn't come out and say, I am the son of God, I am God, I am God's son. But he said, I am. And the Jews understood what that meant. The Jews remembered back when God had said, I am. And when Moses was supposed to say, I am, has sent me. The Jews understood what that meant. And they took up stones to cast at him. But Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple going through their midst and so passed by. Uh, We'll just jump down to uh, Luke 22, the last one there, Luke 22, verses 70 to 71. Then said they all, art thou then the Son of God? And he said unto them, ye say that I am. And that could also be translated, you are right in saying that I am. Or Jesus was affirming that what they were saying was correct. And they said, what, what need we any further witness? For we ourselves has, have heard of his own mouth. So there's no doubt, there's no question that Jesus claimed to be God, claimed to be God's Son. So we have established that Christianity is different from these other two religions in two ways. Number one, the belief that Jesus died and rose again. So Judaism believes that Jesus died, but he did not rise again. And Islam believes that Jesus never died. And so therefore, you could just make it look like he rose again. And secondly, belief that Jesus was God's son. Now, how do we know that these things are true? I'm just curious, if anyone has... Off the top of your head, an answer to that. Maybe based on something we talked about this week or something else. How do we know that these two things are true? Eyewitness accounts and historical documents. Okay, eyewitness accounts and historical documents. We talked about that last night. Any, any other way that, that we can know? That's something that's tangible. Is there anything Intangible. His spirit connects with our spirit, personal experience, or viewing that personal experience in other people's lives. That's, an, that's a very, very important, very important part of it. So there's, tan, there's a tangible thing, and there's also an intangible thing. to keep cruising here. So the proof of Jesus Christ. Some, some atheists claim that Jesus either did not exist or that his existence was unimportant. I found it interesting. Uh, Richard Dawkins, a very prominent atheist, he, he claims that historians don't believe that Jesus existed. Now, it's obvious why he does that. Because if Jesus existed, if the historical documents about Jesus are correct and he rose from the dead, then his atheism is in big trouble. There's a major problem there. But historians agree that Jesus existed and they agree that the Bible was an accurate account of history and cannot be dismissed and that Jesus claimed to be God's son. Now, do we have proof that Jesus rose from the dead? I want to go over a couple of things here. I found this to be uh, very interesting. I'm going to skip right over this slide here. Uh, how many of you have read any of Lee Strobel's books? Yeah, very interesting author. I would recommend. There's one I would recommend. Just, it's just a small one, maybe this size, about that that thin. A very very quick read. Called Finding the Real Jesus. Um, and I, if I remember right, his story is he was a skeptic of Christianity, and he came to prove. Christianity wrong, did a lot of study, talked to a lot of historians, talked to a lot of people, Christians and, and non-Christians, and, and came to a belief in Jesus Christ. And he, he has four proofs of the resurrection. And he says it this way, uh, these four are considered facts based on scripture, of course. We understand that that these are in scripture. But not only that, they have, a strong, they have strong historical evidence. These four have strong historical evidence. And not only that, it's so strong That the vast majority of today's historical scholars, including skeptical ones, accept this as as historical facts. And this obviously is exciting to us because, like I mentioned before, anyone, regardless of what their worldview is or how they grew up, can find out the truth about Jesus. Jesus' disciples believe that he rose and appeared to them. The second proof is the conversion of Paul. The third is the conversion of Jesus' half-brother James. And the fourth is that Jesus' tomb was empty. Jesus' disciples believe that he arose, and we, could see, we, could, we should actually read Paul's testimony. Turn to 1 Corinthians 15, uh, and we'll look at verses 1 through 11. It just mentions a lot of people. Just scan down through there when you get to it. It mentions a lot of people that witnessed the eyewitnesses that saw Jesus after he arose. Uh, in verse 5, it was Cephas, and then of the twelve. After that, 500 brethren at once. Uh, and then of James and of, the, of the, all the apostles. And then he was seen also of me, uh, Paul mentions. So Paul's testimony uh, of all the eyewitnesses is one proof that Jesus' disciples believed that he rose. There was a lot of eyewitnesses. Oral traditions in the early church. Uh, 1 Corinthians 15, where you're turning three through six, that's likely a creed that Paul received orally. So that was an oral tradition in the early church. Written accounts of sermons. Uh, We could look, there's a sermon from Peter in Acts 2 and a sermon from Paul in Acts 13 uh, that talk about that Jesus rose, they're, talk, they're, they're preaching, and they're saying, Jesus rose and you know it, and, and nobody throws him out. Every, everyone, everyone agrees to it. Written works of the early church. Uh, there's four biographies, obviously, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, written within 70 years of Jesus' life, which is incredible from a historical perspective to have something that was written within 70 years of when it actually happened, uh, to have something that, that soon after it happened. Writings of other of the, of the early church people. And then, of course, the martyrdom of the disciples and the rapid growth of the church. There's no other way to explain this outside of them believing that Jesus actually rose from the dead. The conversion of Paul is the second one. Multiple sources, including the Bible, <clears throat> not just the Bible, but other historical sources as well, state that Paul was an enemy of the church, but that he changed his ways in a dramatic fashion and was willing to suffer and die for the cause of Christ. So Paul while he was Jesus' enemy, claimed to have encountered the risen Christ. And there was, there was no reason for him to do that. There was, there was nothing in it for him. You know, we can read accounts of Paul uh, in Philippians, and in a couple places in Philippians, where he talks about all the things that he suffered as a result of believing in Christ. The easiest thing for Paul to do after he saw Jesus would have just been to continue on the direction that he was going. That had been the easiest thing to do. There was nothing for him to gain by believing in Jesus Christ. At least nothing on this earth. Let's make that clear. I think it took a repentance, a shift in his thinking like, uh, like Chris mentioned. Uh, Jesus was, James was Jesus' half-brother. Both Mark and John report that none of Jesus' brothers believed on him. And he was also converted. Jesus appeared to him. That's mentioned in 1 Corinthians, the passage that we looked at. And James, so James was Jesus' brother and, and probably most of you have brothers so you understand what those relationships are like. And... Uh, yet he was converted and became a leader in the, early, in the early church at Jerusalem and ultimately died as a martyr. Now this was very interesting to me. Jesus' tomb was empty and there's, there's three things I'm just going to buzz through these. The Jerusalem factor is the first proof that Jesus' tomb was empty. Basically, Jesus was crucified very publicly in Jerusalem. Everyone saw it. Everyone knew about it. It was public news. It was front page news. Uh, top of the line news. Everyone knew it. Now, not long after that, uh, it was proclaimed in Jerusalem by Jesus' disciples that he rose from the dead. Now, the, uh, the Romans and the, the, uh, the Jews would have both wanted to see Jesus in the tomb. They both had, had good reason to want Jesus to not be raised again. And all they would have had to do to, to defeat that, you know, somebody claiming that Jesus rose again was just go look in the tomb. Just go find him. It's right here in Jerusalem. We all saw him die Several weeks ago, we know he died, and they're now proclaiming that he rose again. We just need to go to the tomb, and, and this crazy, this crazy uh, claim is over. The other was the attestation from enemies. So the skeptics of the time claimed that, Je- that the disciples stole Jesus' body. So they, that also proves even the skeptics of Jesus knew that the tomb was empty. Uh, the third one is the testimony of women. I found this to be really interesting, but in the 1st century Jewish and Roman culture, the testimony of women was considered to be questionable. We surely wouldn't say that today, but at that time, the testimony of women was considered to be questionable. Now, if the disciples were to concoct a story, they wouldn't have said the woman is the first one that saw it happen. Surely they would have said Peter or James or John or somebody else saw it saw the tomb first. But no, the woman was the first one at the tomb and that is how it was recorded. Found this to be very uh, kind of an interesting quote here from philosopher David Hume. He says this. He said that you must reject a miracle as false unless believing in its falsity would have such inexplicable implications that you would need an even, mir- an even bigger miracle to explain them. You catch that? So you must believe that a miracle is false unless believing... by believing that it's false has such unbelievable implications that believing that it's false is even harder than believing that it's true. It's kind of what he's saying. And that is one good reason to believe in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The evidence of the empty tomb, the character of the witnesses, the explosion of Christianity out of Judaism, and the testimony of millions today is is inexplicable, unexplainable, without the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Believing that all those things would happen just out of nothing, that Jesus did not rise, is crazier than believing in the resurrection itself. As Sherlock Holmes was known to say, uh, when you have eliminated the impossible, whatever remains, however improbable, must be the truth. So how do we help other people see the truth? How do we help others see the truth? Is it by being smarter than them, out debating them, studying more than them, No man can come to God except he draw them. The love of God as shown by his people is another way that we can uh, show Christ to others. Showing God to the world through our lives and the way that we deal with difficult situations in life and of course the proof of Jesus Christ that he is who he said he was. Many people come to God by seeing the love of his people and I believe that there's gonna be a lot of people that come to God by witnessing people like us face challenging things. Whatever it might be in the next 50 years, next 100 years in in our society, in our culture, facing those things the way Jesus wants us to face them will turn more hearts to him than anything else, I believe. And so at the end of the day, we're faced with two worldviews. There really is only two, by the way. The one is in the beginning was nothing or mass energy, And everything developed through unguided natural processes until we get the brain and then miraculously life itself. Mass energy is primary in this paradigm and then intelligence somehow comes from it. Or we get in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. All things were made by him and without him was not anything made that was made. The word, the source of intelligence in that paradigm is primary and all things come from it. So when in the beginning, when God spoke things into existence, the word was there carrying that out. I believe Jesus was the word that God spoke to bring things into existence. Which makes more sense. And then the word became flesh. This is the amazing thing. Not only was the word with God and the word was God, but the word became flesh and dwelt among us and we beheld his glory. The glory is of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Regardless of your, what your worldview is, one question remains, and I quote the song, what will you do with Jesus? Neutral you cannot be because one day your heart will be asking, what will he do with me? Thank you for uh, the week we enjoyed it, and uh, god God bless you.